Good theme chooser. That's yes. <laughs> it's I, among I my do many agree. other talents, <laughs> which are many. Just so you guys know, many means just at so least many three. At least three. You could just say a few then, but I guess a few talents sounds kind of underwhelming, doesn't it? Is, it? and it's just not how I am. Andrea has recently learned how to drum. She is I did. a professional. I really only needed to do it once, and I am amazing. Yep. And <laughs> and it's not a not a rock and roll drum set. It's a Scottish pipe band drum set. So. Yeah, because that's the cooler type. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, actually, that'd be really cool to incorporate in any genre, like in a rock genre song. It would be, actually, yeah. Yeah, like, that can be incorporated into anything you want, right? Yeah. Like, that'd be fun. I don't know. Yeah. Someone do it. I don't know. Maybe it's offensive to take it out of the pipe band context. <laughs> maybe, like, some Scottish people are listening to this right now, like, no, don't. Mm. You can't do that. That's our culture. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. But... I mean, that's, you're not wrong, but. <laughs> it's, it's Duncan's drum practice thing it's not a real drum it's just a pad oh yeah that you used to practice and uh yeah he's scottish so it's allowed um that's so many times removed and well it's yeah. very far removed. i mean we are also have we're irish that's not well <laughs> they're the same background celtic that's, yeah, okay. We're all Celtic. Fair enough. Let's be friends, guys. Andrea says we're, we were all friends. Celtic. We all just hated the English. Yeah. Which we also have. So. Oh. There's a, a war within us. Yeah, this is why we're, we have so much inner conflict, I think. <laughs> and outer conflict. And also. upper <clears throat> conflict. And bottom conflict. And diagonal conflict. And, and sideways conflict. We're okay. super funny tonight. God, we're both just so fucking tired. Forgive us. I, um, Be nice to us. Like, I just, I've been working in Edmonton. That's why we didn't have a an episode last week because we ran out of time and didn't realize, oh, yeah, I'm not actually going to physically be in Cochrane. So uh, I guess we can't record. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm working in Edmonton these weeks again. And so now we have to make sure we record on weekends. Otherwise, there's no more chance. Yeah, and we don't want to keep having to put it off. Sorry about that, folks. And yeah. our apologies to patrons right now, too, because we haven't caught up on our bonus episodes. Yeah, so we need to do those, a couple. Yeah, you'll, you'll be getting a huge, like, backload of them. Yeah. One day, it'll alert you, and you'll be like, there's 500 tiny episodes <laughs> for me to listen to. You guys couldn't have compiled this, and, <laughs> and we'll respond, no. And that's it. Yeah. That's, and you have to accept it. Um, yeah, enjoy. <laughs> anyway, now that I've made a lofty <laughs> promise, um, what is your fear for this week, Andrea? I, okay, school. Fair. I have been doing all of my activities that, you know, you actually have to do that people can see, like assignment shit. Mm. However, I have not done any of the readings. Oh. So a lot of what I'm doing is, uh, not well informed, but... You're bullshitting. Uh, I'm bullshitting. I hope your teach. <laughs> I hope none of your professors listen to this podcast. Uh, I mean, chances are good they don't. But I hope not. Yeah, Andrea I guess we'll just find out. A look just passed across her face, like it's an, entirely possible. That, that was a life flashing before your eyes. Look. Yeah. Um. Yeah. We have listeners all over the place. I don't know if I've met any of them. Hopefully, one isn't my teacher, and I'm not going to say her name because. Yeah, don't. That will give me away. Well, and then <laughs> people who aren't her will send this to her just yeah, to be they'll be that like, way. hey, check this out. Guess what? This is one of your students. I have nothing better to do on a Sunday night on... than <laughs> attack a random podcaster. That'd be really sad. <laughs> like, it at least be. go after a YouTuber or something, yeah, right? Yeah, do something else. Something impressive. But... Go for a jog. Um... <laughs> a jog. I don't know. Make things right with your children. Blow up and your a, wife. A dead car. I mean that escalated. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh. I have weird thoughts. That's fair. It just popped into my mind an exploding uh, car in a like a dump. Uh, yeah. That's kind of so... where I pictured it. But um, <laughs> yeah, I guess my fear is toilets. 
Yeah, those are gross. Yeah, I had to, okay, I have a worse fear. I had one that was intense and deep, but I'm going to save it for next time. So you get toilets this time. I had to clean one at work, and uh, it was, yeah, I didn't enjoy doing this because, like, obviously, you know. How bad was it? It was actually fine because the, well, it it was a toilet. Is the thing. So there's always All of the toilets shit. are toilets. It's just not good. Yeah, like there's always gonna be some shit grime in the Ew. bowl, right? Because it's inevitable for people. <sighs> there's nothing on the outside of it, thank goodness. Is it goodness. just a staff toilet? It is, yeah. Okay. So at least, yeah, no. Um, actually, my manager made that like very clear like when we moved locations she's like and i'm so glad there's an employees only thing like nailed to the door because mm-hmm. i we're not letting people use it i am not cleaning up the shit of random strangers no and that's probably a good idea with covid right now too like, yeah you really like you'd shouldn't. have to sanitize it in between every every uh customer then yeah which would that be, would be impossible yeah well i mean you would just spend a lot of your time cleaning the bathroom yeah, which is not the biz that I'm in. No. And I don't like it. But no. my hand definitely touched toilet water and now I'm upset. Ew. So, yeah, okay. I know. I don't like toilets. I know. I couldn't find any disposable gloves. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to go in there. Ew. I'm just going. Oh, uh, yeah. It Duncan's was... done that for me, actually. I once dropped my, what did I drop? I think contact lens case or something in there. Oh, well, that's going in the fucking garbage. Oh, yeah, I threw you it out. You have to fish it out, though, I yeah. I can't flush it. No, you have to. Break my toilet. So. Yeah, you have to fish it out. <laughs> he yeah. went ahead and just, like, he just strolled right up and just grabbed it out. And I'm like. Yep. I once dropped my cell phone in the toilet. People it do that a lot. I, uh, I don't think I've ever done it. It was in a shallow pocket in my pants, and that's oh, how okay. that happened. But, like, yeah. See, I, I don't panicked. carry and... things in pockets. I don't usually have pockets. <laughs> Social commentary time. Uh, Why yes. don't women have pockets? The discourse. <laughs> One, two, three, go. I don't want pockets. I don't want them. Oh, okay. I like I can't comfortable sweatpants. Counter-revolutionary. Any- <laughs> uh, yeah, because I have a purse. I don't really need one. Um, What else? I think that's it. I think that we were going to say something, but I don't remember. But so anyway, because we missed last week, we are doing a in-depth episode. Yes, we did a really long case and Andrea chose the theme. I chose a theme and then run did the research and now I don't know what we're doing and what I'm going to be saying. And I'm suffering <laughs> because it was very in-depth. So yeah. strap in, folks. Get yourself something to drink. The theme was someone some who turned out to be innocent or Yes, it was maybe. wrongful executions. Okay, that's not good. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. It's good for our podcast. But this is why I'm saying I don't believe in the death penalty. Yeah. And I know some people might argue with that. I'm not sure it's that great of a deterrent because people keep doing shit that gets them the death penalty in the states where there is the death penalty. Um, that's the thing, though. They're not necessarily doing the shit right. Like, well, that's, been a, a that's lot the of other thing. So then you've got it's not working as a deterrent, and then you have people getting convicted and being killed for no reason. Yeah, it's not making people not do crimes. No, and, and you're it's also, also risking causing, killing someone. Yeah, who's innocent. You really just shouldn't be killing someone as revenge for murder. Just that like, seems It's the government, awkward. the courts. Nobody should be able to have that decision-making um, because I don't no. really believe that they're competent. They're, that's because they're not is the thing. And yeah. this is another one of those cases, so I'm just going to get out of the way ACAB there did it, did, did our due diligence. I'll try not to focus on it, but who's ready for some court drama? I am. Yay. Um. So I'll be starting us off, and this is The Execution of Timothy Evans. Poor Timmy. I'm yeah. guessing he's innocent. I don't know. All right. You'll, I'll find out. You'll find out. <laughs> but yes, because that is the theme. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spoilers for Two Scared Siblings episode. Spoilers for the case of Timothy Evans. Like, can you spoil for a real event? Like, no. No. <laughs> Damn it, I was going to watch that episode that episode <laughs> i was gonna watch that in real life that changed your cosplay plans but yeah. all right so the execution of timothy evans timothy apparently <laughs> i my lip got caught on my tooth okay so i'm gonna give you a bit of background info, ugh, info on timothy evans here so 
and this is going to get worse. Welsh words are happening soon. Oh, great. Timothy was a native of... Merthyr. Merthyr. Tidville. I'm sure that's not how it's pronounced. No. It was in Glamorgan, Wales. He was Welsh, okay? <laughs> so his father, Daniel, abandoned the family in April 1924 before Timothy's birth. And Timothy had an older sister named Eileen, who was born in 1921, and a younger half-sister named Maureen, who was born in September 1929. His mother remarried in September 1933. So there was a lot of family and marrying and the usual stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, pretty normal. How did, okay, so his father abandoned the family in 1924, but then his mother had a baby in 1929? Yeah, I mean, maybe she had the baby with someone who she was, like, with the dude she was going to marry oh, later. Okay. all right. Or maybe, I don't know. That would be right? scandalous in the 1920s. Yeah, I mean, we we won't call out Timothy Evans' mother. Okay. I mean, she's probably definitely dead by now but i don't i would guess so <laughs> so as a child timothy had difficulty learning to speak and he struggled at school after an accident when he was eight he developed a tubercular verruca somehow okay it was on his right foot and it never completely healed yeah. and caused him to miss like a lot of time from school you know because he was getting treatments which set his education back even further yeah verruca's like a wart right so tubercular verruca yeah that would be like an inf a severely infected. Yeah, like it would. Yeah, it would definitely cause you know bad shit. the inability to attend school. Yeah, especially it's like on the bottom. Yeah, on his right foot. But yeah, I yeah. It doesn't sound like he had a good time with this. So that was a problem, right? So he didn't even end up going to school enough to catch up as mm -hmm. much. So when he reached adulthood, Timothy didn't have great literacy skills, right? And he often needed other people to read, like, longer documents to him. Although he did have some ability to read, like, more simple passages, like from comics, um, newspaper football reports apparently he liked, and stuff that was written on, like, his wages and receipts. Okay. He liked boxing and football. D yay. Sp Great. Football. <laughs> and was specifically a fan of the Queen's Park Rangers, as was a man named John Christie, who we'll be talking about in a bit. Okay. Timothy was also, like, he would make up stories about himself to, like, basically boost his self-esteem, right? He'd yeah. make himself seem cooler than he was, you know, things a lot of people do. But for him, this was, like, a trait that continued into adulthood and ended up interfering with his efforts to establish credibility when later dealing with the police and courts. Yeah, like, this really fucked him over. He's at a disadvantage, for sure. Yeah, if, if you're known for, like, making up wild stories, mm -hmm. that's not gonna work in your favor. No. So, in 1935, Timothy's mother and her second husband moved to London, and Timothy worked there as a painter and a decorator while he attended school. He returned to Merthyrdfil, <laughs> Welsh, uh, Wales, in 1937 and briefly worked in the coal mines, but he had to quit because of the chronic problems with his foot. So in 1939, he went back to London to live with his mother again, and in 1946, they moved to St. Mark's Road, Notting Hill, which was just over two minutes' walk from 10 Rillington Place, which would become his future residence after he got married. Okay. Yeah, so, I don't know, buy a place close to your mom, fair. Timothy was actually fined, like, 60 shillings <laughs> at West London Magistrates Court on the 25th of April 1946 of that year for stealing a car and driving without insurance or a license, which I think is hilarious. Like, it's just a funny addition to make to <laughs> the crime of stealing a car. you that insurance. Right? Like, not only did you steal a car, but you, you don't have it. a license, <laughs> sir. How could you? So truly, what's the real crime here? Yeah. Like, I just thought it was a funny thing for them to add in the court document. Like, that is. Isn't stealing a car enough, guys? That but, should be enough, yes. <laughs> but they're like, oh. But, but also, but all those licensed license. thieves, all the, <laughs> like all the approved car thefts. So, moving on to Timothy's married life, on the twentieth of September, nineteen forty-seven, Timothy married Beryl Susanna Thorley. He'd met her through a friend in January of that year, and the friend had basically set the pair up on a blind date. Okay. Apparently, this sort of worked out though. Like the couple initially lived with Timothy's family at St. Mark's Road, but in early nineteen forty-eight. 
Beryl discovered that she was pregnant, so they decided that they would find their own place to live with their child. That's reasonable. Yeah, yeah, it's time. On Easter Monday, 1948, they moved into the top floor flat. That's some Fs. At 10 Rillington Place in the Ladbroke Grove area of Notting Hill. Notting Hill, it sounds so romantic, right? Like, this sounds like it's going to be a good time, but yeah. it just isn't. Their neighbors in the ground floor flat were John Christie. Was, ah, this Aha. guy I mentioned earlier, yep. Intriguing. Yep, so John was a post office clerk and and former special constable who lived with his wife, Ethel Christie. And they made cookies. They sound like they would. It's the name Ethel is making me think cookies. Yeah. And Christy. But you got that wrong. Okay. Because unfortunately what Timothy didn't know was that John Christie was a serial killer. Oh, good. Who had already killed two women at the property prior to the Evans' arrival, and he'd buried their bodies in the back garden. So no cookies. I mean, maybe he did both. Okay. Like, I don't want to pigeonhole people here. All right. Right? You can be a serial killer that makes cookies. That's... Maybe that is the family that that brand came from. Can you even imagine? <laughs> like, what's in these cookies? Is it death? No. <laughs> That'd be unfair. I'm sure they're great. So John, unfortunately, he would go on to murder at least four more women, including his own wife, over the next five years. Yeah. And he was... Being the wife of a serial killer is a risky business. I, I wonder if she even knew, right? Like, maybe not. It's very no, possible No, a lot of them didn't. don't. Yeah, I suspect not, but I, I don't know for sure. Because this happened in the 1940s. And <laughs> <laughs> so back to the married couple who've just moved in on top of a serial killer. Right. So on the 10th of October, 1948, Timothy and Beryl had a daughter named Geraldine. And like overall, this, you know, it seemed fine, but their marriage was actually characterized by angry fights. Like, Beryl was apparently bad at housekeeping and wasn't good at managing the family's, like, finances. Hmm. Meanwhile, Timothy misspent his wages on alcohol, and his heavy drinking at the time made his shitty temper worse. Great. Yeah, he, he already like had a temper. Catch. Yeah. You'll find out. Okay. So, the arguments between Timothy and Beryl were loud enough to be heard by the neighbors, and physical violence between them was seen on several like occasions, right? Yeah. So in 1949, though, Beryl revealed to Timothy that she was pregnant with their second child. No. However, since the family was already struggling financially and obviously emotionally, Beryl decided to have an abortion. Solid choice. Yep. After some initial reluctance, Timothy agreed, which makes sense. You're fighting all the time. You have no money. Probably not the right time to have a baby. No, I mean, you might even be divorcing at some point because... Obviously, the marriage is on the rocks. Yeah, your marriage isn't great. physically abusing each other. Yeah, sounds bad. Like, I don't know if she physically abused him back, but I know that, like, people saw saw him. Saw physical shit. Yeah. So he might have hit her, which wouldn't have been uncommon, unfortunately. So, yeah. Yeah, which, yeah, I guess it wasn't even, like, illegal. Yeah, I know, right? Like, so fucked up. (laughs) All right, so on to what happened. Several weeks after the whole thing with the abortion discussion on the 30th of November, 1949, Timothy informed police at Wales that his (laughs) wife had died in unusual circumstances. His first confession was that he had accidentally killed her by giving her something in a bottle that a man had given him to abort the fetus. He had then disposed of her body in a sewer drain outside 10 Rillington Place. Okay. He told the police that after arranging for Geraldine, you know, their baby daughter, to be looked after, he, you know, come back to Wales, where he then was. Yeah. okay. When police examined the drain outside the front of that building, however, they didn't find anything. And even more than that, they discovered that the manhole cover required the combined strength of at least three officers to remove it. So, like, how would Timothy have done this casually by himself? Right? The way he described it. Okay. Yeah, this there's is no way. Yeah. Why is he confessing to, to shit? And he's, like, volunteering the information. Like He is, too, and you'll find out. When he was re-questioned, Timothy changed his story and said that John Christie, the friendly neighborhood serial killer from downstairs, had offered to perform an abortion on Beryl, which is an oh-shit moment. Was he a doctor? <laughs> I don't. I, he was respected. 
that's not the same thing. I know, <laughs> right? I don't know, like, how John, like, played himself up to his neighbors, right? Okay. He, maybe he said that he'd had experience with this or yeah. something, but, like, who knows? Yeah. It's just, uh, it's the 40s and people are making bad choices. Okay. All right, so Timothy stated that he had left John out of his first story in order to protect him since abortion was illegal in the UK at the time, right? right? But after some deliberation between Timothy and Beryl, they unfortunately both agreed to take up John's offer, not knowing any better. They knew better. They didn't know that this guy sucked. Well, oh, right, yeah, okay. Yeah, they didn't know he was a serial killer. He didn't didn't advertise it, although he might as well have, you'll find out. On the 8th of November, Timothy returned home from work to be informed by John that the abortion had not worked and that Beryl was dead. John said that he would dispose of the body and would make arrangements for, like, a couple from East Acton to look look after their daughter, Geraldine, which is, again, oh, shit. Yeah, don't don't give Geraldine to John. Don't do it. Don't give your baby daughter to a serial killer. Yeah, don't do not do it. I know. He must have come across super trustworthy. He also said that, you know, maybe Timothy should leave London uh, in the meantime. And Timothy must still have trusted John. So on the 14th of November, he left for Wales to stay with relatives. Timothy said that he later returned to 10 Rillington Place to ask about Geraldine, but that John refused to let him see her. No. Yeah. So, heads My up. My heart just... Yeah, it's not good. In response to Timothy's second statement here, the police performed a preliminary search of 10 Rillington Place, right? But they didn't uncover anything incriminating, apparently, despite the presence of a human thigh bone. Oh yeah, that's fine. Supporting a fence post in the tiny garden. Which was a very common thing. Everybody used thigh bones of their victims to build fences. Right? Like, it was just propping up a part of the fence, and I don't know how they missed it, because this garden was apparently not big. Okay. Right? (laughs) I mean, did they just not look? I mean, a femur looks like a femur. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing they just thought it was part of the fence somehow, and they they weren't looking carefully is the thing. Clearly not. Okay. So, during a more thorough search, like probably a real search, on December 2nd, the police found the body of Beryl Evans. She was wrapped in a tablecloth in the wash house in the back garden. A- uh, like access to this locked wash house was only possess- uh, like was only possible if you used a knife that was kept by Mrs. Christie, John's wife. Okay. Yeah, so you had to pry this shit open, I guess, and hmm. and that's the only knife around. Yeah, that's the right knife for the job. Okay. <laughs> Geraldine's body was found alongside Beryl's body. No. They had both been strangled. So really, he just took the opportunity to get some killing done. Yeah, basically. Okay. So besides being extremely tragic, this was then significant to the trial because Timothy had never mentioned killing his daughter in either of his statements. Yeah. Yeah. Because he didn't. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he killed Beryl either, but here's some more wild info. Although they examined the garden, the police somehow didn't find traces of the skeletal remains of two prior victims of John Christie. Remember, they were buried in the garden? Yeah. Even though they really weren't buried very deep. Wow. Like, really not deep at all. John had actually removed the skull of a woman named Miss Edie when his dog dug it up from the garden around that time, and he disposed of it in a bombed-out building nearby. However, the skull was later found by children playing in the bombed-out ruins, and they, you know, had even been handed in to police. Yet, annoyingly as fuck, this vital clue was ignored. Great. <laughs> mm-hmm. They didn't do anything with it. Uh, so, okay. when Timothy was shown the clothing, like, taken from the bodies of his wife and child, he was also informed that both had been strangled, and this was, like... According to Timothy's statement, the first time in which he was even told that his baby daughter had also been killed. <sighs> yeah. So he was asked whether he was responsible for their deaths, and to this, he apparently responded yes. Well, he did give them to a serial killer. However. Yeah, the way that's it's worded, the serial right? killer's fault, so. <laughs> right? But he's illiterate. Like, he's not verbally good or good at reading, so he might have been like, yes, it is my fault. Yeah. Not, yes, I did it. It's, like, so hard to tell, right? He then apparently confessed to having strangled Beryl during an argument over debt, so his story's changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and confessed to strangling Geraldine two days later, after which he left for Wales. So he's, I think he's covering for John, honestly. Either that or, like, they managed to, like, get him to say that he did it. Because if he's not good with that sort of thing and he's illiterate and he's not maybe that highly intelligent, then it's really easy for police to just badger confessions out of people like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, they beat them out of people now. I'm sure they absolutely did in the 40s. Absolutely. Yeah. So this confession, despite, you know, being contradictory, was still accepted alongside even more contradictory statements and was obviously used as proof of his guilt. Several authors who have written about the case have argued that the police provided Timothy with all the necessary details for him to make a plausible confession, which they may have in turn edited further while transcribing it. And there's more. Of course. Yep, there's always more. The police had interrogated Timothy very late in the evening and throughout early morning hours, which basically wrecked him, like, both physically and emotionally. He was already in a pretty bad emotional state. Yeah, it's upsetting. (laughs) It was a bad time. Timothy also later stated in court that he thought he would be subjected to violence by the police if he didn't confess, and this fear, along with the, you know, shock of discovering that both his wife and daughter had been strangled, likely caused him to make a false confession. Yeah, he's upset. Like, he's just gonna give up. It's early morning, he's going through grief. You're exhausted, they won't let up, and... They're threatening to hurt you. Yeah, you've got extreme grief. I would just be like, fine. Like, okay, well, I don't think I would, but... You know, it's... It's plausible. It's plausible that that's what would happen. Yeah, and he didn't know anything about these court proceedings or anything at all, right? Like, they probably showed him documents of consenting and he couldn't read them, Mm -hmm. right? So the police investigation was, you know, also really fucked up since there was obviously a huge lack of forensic expertise and significant evidence was just, like, overlooked. Like, just anything that contradicted this, they're just like, ah, toss it. Yeah, that tracks. Yep. Interestingly, a book called The Psychology of Interrogations and Confessions states that some of the phrasing of Timothy's confession sounded like it was more in line with the language a police officer would use. Yeah. Not an illiterate man who also struggled verbally like Timothy. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. So regardless, back when this all took place, Timothy was kept in solitary confinement for two days and then handed over to the London police. And he didn't even know what was happening. Right, at this point, other than the fact that his wife's body had not been found in the drain as expected, which is probably something John told him he did, like, where John told him he put it after the failed abortion. It was actually at Notting Hill Police Station that Timothy was even shown his wife's and daughter's clothing, right? Like, this when he found out. And the ligature that showed how his daughter was strangled. And this particular book covering this called the, yeah, The Psychology of Interrogations and Confessions sounds like a gripping read. (laughs) It also cites a source for the conclusion that Timothy felt tremendous guilt over not doing more to prevent the deaths of his wife and daughter. And particularly that his daughter's murder was a tremendous shock to him. Like he was not expecting that. Mm -hmm. I haven't read the book, so I don't know for sure what all is in there. But like the case for Timothy being the murderer is pretty weak right now. Yeah. It sounds like it. In any case, Timothy Evans was put on trial for the murder of his daughter on the 11th of January, 1950. We're getting out of the 40s here. Okay. In accordance with legal practice at the time, the prosecution proceeded only with the single charge of murder. So that was the one concerning Geraldine specifically. Timothy hadn't actually been formally charged with Beryl's murder yet, but evidence that he had murdered her was still used basically with the goal of saying that he must have killed Geraldine. Like, so that's cheating. But yeah, Timothy was represented by Malcolm Morris. He also withdrew his confession and alleged that John Christie was actually responsible for the murders in accordance with his second statement, the one given to the police in Wales. This (laughs) allegation was somehow dismissed by the court as, quote, fantastic. So they weren't buying it. That's that's their way of saying it sounds like bullshit. Fine. Right? And Timothy's solicitors had also warned him that it was going to be difficult to prove. But despite all that, Timothy maintained this defense until his execution. Okay. It was, of course, later found that John Christie, not Timothy Evans, was responsible for the deaths of Beryl and Geraldine. So, Andrea, now you get to tell us all about how this shit goes downhill even more. Yay. Okay, it's my turn now. (laughs) John, why are you like this? 
is the beginning of this paragraph. That's my title. <laughs> so, of course, John and his wife, Ethel, were key witnesses for the prosecution. Y- yeah. Yeah, John's going to turn on you. He's a, he's a serial killer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they like to get away with it. Yeah. They don't that, like that to go to jail. Thing, yeah. John denied that he had offered to abort Beryl's unborn child and gave detailed evidence about the fights between Timothy and his wife. Meanwhile, the defense aimed to show that John was indeed the murderer by highlighting his past criminal record. John had previous convictions for several thefts and for malicious wounding, as opposed to kind-heartedly wounding, says Ren. Yeah, I know. I'm, that, well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, what do you mean? Well, maybe versus accidental. Yeah, or I don't know. defensive. I've never yeah. heard that as a charge. The malicious wounding case had involved John striking a woman on the head with a cricket bat because it's England. (laughs) But his apparent reform and his service with the police may have impressed the jury. The defense also couldn't find a motive as to why a respected man like John Christie would murder two people. I don't know. Well, because he's a serial killer. Serial killers. They just like to. They just like it. That's their thing. Yeah. Whereas the prosecution could easily use the explanation in Timothy's confessions as his motive for doing it. Yeah. Don't confess if you didn't do it. Yeah, don't do that. That's a very bad strike against you. Yeah. Even though, unlike John, Timothy had no previous convictions for violence, his conflicting statements still messed up his credibility with people. If the police had actually conducted a decent search of the garden and found the bones of John's two previous victims, Timothy probably wouldn't have been on trial at all. Yep. Yeah. He obviously likes strangling people. Right. So probably that's what they might find. Who knows? They'd be like, hmm, well... That doesn't track with the fact that you've been in jail, but... Yeah, weird. Hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, the case basically boiled down to John's word against Timothy's, and the whole course of the trial turned against him. The trial also only lasted for three days, and a whole lot of key evidence was omitted or just never shown to the jury for whatever reason. Maybe they forgot? Uh, I'm (laughs) trying to throw them a bone here. No, no bones get thrown. So, Timothy was found guilty, and the jury only took 40 minutes to come to that decision. After a failed appeal, Timothy Evans was hanged on the 9th of March, 1950. You know what? It makes sense, though, that they would think that. Because right now, they don't know John is a serial killer. There's no no other evidence. No. Yeah. But, but, I mean, like, Timothy did give them a second story. Well, and he's been all over the place with his stories. Yeah, and he's known for making up shit. So, they don't know which one it is. They want to close this fast. Sigh. Of Isn't course, that always the case? Yeah, that's always the case. Of course, the reliability of Timothy's conviction conviction was severely uh, criticized yeah. when John's murders were discovered just three years later. During interviews with police and psychiatrists prior to his own execution, John Christie admitted several times that he had been responsible for the murder of Beryl Evans. If these confessions were true, then Timothy's second statement detailing John's offer to abort Beryl's baby is likely the truest version of the events that took place at Rillington Place on the 8th of November, 1949. Yep. A well-known Scottish reporter, broadcaster, and humanist named Ludovic Kennedy. Do you know him, Duncan? Duncan, is this one of your Scottish cousins? You all know each other right now. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) He was the person sourced in that book we talked about earlier. Provided one possible reconstruction of how the murder murder took place. Basically surmising that an unsuspecting Beryl let John into her flat, expecting the abortion to be carried out, but was instead attacked and then strangled. Yikes. <laughs> sorry, that was just... And she was strangled. So, I mean, yeah, that's probably how it went down. Yeah, like it obviously yeah. was not a failed abortion. No, like that's another weird thing, right? Like, how Timothy just was not cluing into this, but he probably didn't see the body either. No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, John also said that he had possibly engaged in sexual intercourse with Beryl's body after her death. No. I hope not. He claimed to be unable to remember the pre- precise details, but her post-mortem hadn't uncovered evidence of sexual intercourse, so hopefully he didn't. Yeah. But he obviously did with... One of his victims. That was obviously a thought that he had about certain victims, so yeah, yeah, potentially. In his confessions regarding Beryl's death, John actually denied that he had agreed to carry out an abortion on Beryl. He instead claimed to have strangled her while being intimate with her, or that she had wanted to commit suicide and he helped her do so. Ren is wondering if he (laughs) thought that abortion was somehow worse than those other two things. (laughs) (laughs) 
He's like, oh, I'm not going to jail for that sin. It wasn't a failed abortion. It was sexual asphyxiation. Yeah, it wasn't. I promise I would never abort a fetus. I'd only kill a woman. I would only kill a woman erotically. I would only murder someone. (laughs) But not a fetus. (laughs) Not, no. Never. Another important fact that was not brought up in Timothy's trial was that the two workmen had been willing to testify that there were no bodies in the wash house when they worked there several days after Timothy had supposedly hidden them. The workmen had stored their tools in the washroom, which was basically a tiny little outhouse, and cleaned it out completely when they finished their work on the 11th of November. That evidence by itself would have raised some doubts about Timothy's alleged confessions, but the workmen just had never been called in to give their evidence. Yeah. And it should come as a shock to no one that the police re-interviewed the workmen and even forced them to change their evidence to fit the preconceived idea that Timothy was the sole murderer. Fuck. Confirmation bias. Very bad. Everybody has it. Fix it. Stop that, guys. In actuality, John would have hidden the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine in the temporarily vacant first floor flat where they'd lived and then moved them to the wash house four days later when the workmen had finished. Yeah, makes sense, right? It's empty now that Timothy's been arrested and or is in Wales either way. Yeah, so they're good to go. Yep. Uh, John Christie's previous murders. Here we go. Three years after all this went down, John had vacated his premises at 10 Rillington Place, so the landlord allowed an upstairs tenant, Beresford Brown, to use John's kitchen. Brown found the bodies of three women, Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan. That's quite the name. Yeah. Hidden in a papered-over kitchen pantry, which was a recess right next to the wash house where Beryl and Geraldine Evans had been found. Yeah. A further search of the building and its ground grounds turned up three more bodies. John Christie's own wife, Ethel, was under the floorboards of the front room. Ruth Furst, an Austrian nurse and munitions worker, and Muriel Eady, a former colleague of John, were both buried in the right-hand side of the small back garden of the building. Yeah. As previously mentioned, John had even used one of their thigh... bones... To prop up a trellis in the garden, which the police had managed to miss in their earlier searches of the property. Of course they did. Why would right. they? Why would they find it's, obvious shit? It's, that doesn't make any sense. It's not even a big garden. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> mad. John Christie was arrested on the 31st of March, 1953, on the embankment near Putney Bridge, and during interrogation, he confessed four separate times to killing Beryl Evans. He never admitting t- admitted to killing Geraldine Evans, however. Right, because... Clearly different people killed them and then stored the bodies in the same place. Yeah, it's odd, <laughs> right? <clears throat> like maybe him and Timothy work together on this, but I don't buy that. I don't buy it. And also, like you can get – so I don't know if you've heard of the Watts family murders. Mm, but Chris yes. Watts got double – like he got convicted twice for each child that he murdered. So it was like committing mm. two murders because it's a child under 12. Right. So it could be that he was like, oh, I'm going to be punished worse. Right. <clears throat> Although, I mean, he's gonna be punished pretty bad be either way. Executed. So I don't. Yeah. So maybe not. Although he was, you'll find out. Okay. He also confessed to murdering Ruth Furst and Muriel Eady, saying he had stored their bodies in the washroom before burying them in shallow graves in the garden. It was in the same washroom that the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine Evans had been found during the, the investigation into their murders. John was found guilty of murdering his wife and was hanged on the 15th of July, 1953, by the exact same hangman who had executed Timothy just three years earlier. I don't think I would want to be a hangman. I I'd be like, wonder, are you right? for sure guilty? Because because I'm about to have about blood to on my you. hands. I don't like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a certain personality type that did it, right? Like uh, It seems like it would have to be. <clears throat> or maybe they just need the money desperately and they hated it. Maybe. Uh, Because John's crimes raised doubts about Timothy's guilt in the murders of his wife and daughter, the serving Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife, commissioned an inquiry to investigate the possibility of a miscarriage of justice. So he was like, hey guys, I think we should check to see if this was maybe botched a little. (laughs) I mean... A guy that our that the man we killed Let's for this confirm. murder did mention another guy who turned out to be a serial killer. <laughs> so we probably should look at that. However, the inquiry ran for one week and its findings upheld Timothy's guilt in both murders, with the explanation that John's confessions of murdering Beryl Evans were unreliable because they were made in the context of supporting his own defense that he was criminally insane. Okay. Right. 
But this conclusion was met with skepticism by both the press and the public. If John's confessions were unreliable, then what exactly made Timothy's confessions acceptable? No shit. Yeah. Also, the inquiry ignored vital evidence and led to even more questions in Parliament. So the controversy continued until it eventually led to the exculpation of Timothy Evans and a declaration of his innocence in the murder of both his wife and his daughter. Yeah, no worries. I have a Charlie horse. Just stand for a half second. I could tell <laughs> that you're racing against the... Yeah, like it was like... It just it okay. suddenly grabbed you. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, where was I? Okay. The murder of Beryl Evans was, for some reason, never a primary charge in the trials of either Timothy or John. Timothy had only been formally charged with the murder of his daughter, and John was charged with the murder of his wife, Ethel Christie. So a lot of questions surrounding Beryl's death just weren't even a point of concern during the trials and wouldn't have been brought up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> and at one point, questions that had been drafted by a solicitor representing Timothy's mother were deemed not relevant. And Scott Henderson, the inquiry guy, judge, <laughs> basically decided that he was going to reserve the right of deciding if they could even be asked. I'm not even going to let you ask a question. Yeah, you don't. If I don't like the question, it's not getting it's uttered. not, yeah, I, not allowed. I just, that's so guilty seeming. Yeah. Like... It's ridiculous. They know they fucked up. They know they fucked up. Um, Additional counter evidence. Great. In 1955, David Astor, editor of The Observer, Ian Gilmore, editor of The Spectator, John Grigg, editor of The National and English Review, and Sir Linton Andrews, editor of The Yorkshire Post, formed a delegation to petition the Home Secretary for a new inquiry because the Scott Henderson inquiry... The first one had sex so bad. <laughs> it was not good. No. In the same year, barrister Michael Eddowes ex- examined the case and wrote a book called The Man on Your Conscience, which argued that Timothy couldn't have been the killer, basically because that would mean there'd have to be a lot of weird coincidences between his crimes and John's, notably that two strangler murderers who both used a ligature to kill their victims had been living in the same property at the same time, unknown to each other. Fair. Yeah, it is, because it's kind of a specific thing, like a ligature strangling, not even like hands specifically. Yeah, it's a... It's a signature MO or whatever. Yeah, it's an MO. Like, what What are the chances that two serial killers or murderers that happen to do that and live are in the, in the same, same place? And, yeah. Uh, in 1965, Liberal Party politician Herbert Wolfe contacted Harold Evans, then editor of the Northern Echo. He and Kennedy, the Scottish reporter guy, <laughs> formed the Timothy Evans Committee. After a prolonged campaign, Home Secretary Sir Frank Souskis... Uh, ordered a new inquiry chaired by High Court Judge Sir Daniel Braben in 1965 and 66. That's a lot of names. It is a lot of names. It is a lot of names. I said a lot of names just now. I know. I know, guys. (laughs) Don't worry. Don't worry. The point is that Braben sucks. Okay. Braben found it was, quote, more probable than not that Timothy murdered his wife and that he did not murder his daughter. No, that's stupid. That's very strange. This was contrary to the prosecution case in Timothy's trial, which held that both murders had been committed by the same person as a single act, which makes sense. Makes more sense. The victim's bodies had been found together in the same location and had been murdered in the same way by strangulation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but Braben yeah. went out of his way to keep referring to the police's evidence wherever possible, basically to exonerate them of any police mic- mix- misconduct. You can do it. I could do it. (laughs) And he didn't address any of the allegations Kennedy made that questioned the validity of several of Timothy's confessions. Braben also tiptoed around the whole idea that the police maybe were a little incompetent when they did those first searches of the garden and somehow missed the thigh bone holding up the fence. Why would you even use that? Okay. He didn't. He didn't. That's the thing, right? I know, but why would they... Why would you use a thigh bone to hold up? Oh, you're wondering about the utility of thigh bone architecture. (laughs) I don't know. I'm wondering if it poked up out of the ground and he's just like, oh, "Oh, I'll keep it there. It's helping my fence. Perch it there. I don't know. He was not careful about this. No, he didn't have to be. He had a perfect fall guy. Yeah, apparently he hadn't been trying for years before they'd moved in though, right? Like, It's just so weird. That's weird, yeah. That's because the police are bad and he knew. 
So basically, the inquiry didn't do a whole lot to settle the many issues surrounding the case, but by exonerating Timothy Evans of killing his child, it was still crucial, crucial later on. Since Timothy had only been convicted of the murder of his daughter, the next Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins, recommended a royal pardon for Timothy Evans, and that was granted in October of 1966. Earlier, in 1965, Timothy's remains were exhumed from Pentonville Prison and reburied in St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Leytonstone, Greater London. So this is too late. Yeah. You can't pardon somebody after you fucking killed them. It's ridiculous. Well, for the family, basically being like, yeah. Yeah, but still, it's horrible. I know. And they should give the They're family fucked. money. They do. Okay, good. <laughs> More spoilers. The, they have, no. Yeah. The outcry over Timothy Evans, over the Timothy Evans case, also contributed to the suspension and then abolition of capital punishment in the United Kingdom. Good. Good. Very good. I know. I'm glad they finally fucking abolished it. Because we're proving that they don't, or they're not good at making these decisions. No, like this is a <laughs> huge fucking choice. Yeah. Timothy's innocence. In January 2003, the Home Office awarded Timothy Evans's half sister, Mary Westlake, and his sister, Eileen Ashby, ex gratia. Ex gratia? Ex gratia. Um, yeah, probably ex gratia. Payments as compensation for the miscarriage of justice in Evans's trial. They gave his family money as a whole, sorry we murdered your family member on false charges thing. <laughs> Basically, that's it. The independent assessor for the Home Office, Lord Brennan QC, accepted that, quote, the conviction and execution of Timothy Evans for the murder of his child was wrongful and a miscarriage of justice, and that, quote, there is no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans in the murder of his wife. She was most probably murdered by Christie. Duh. He is a serial killer, guys. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we probably should have looked at that Can you imagine, like, like, John murdered uh, his wife and then stashed the body in the bathhouse and then Timothy was like, I just moved here. Where, where do we put the bodies that we kill? Right. And Oh, oh, I found – okay, I'll put mine there too. Where Timothy's just <laughs> starting out because he's like, oh, you mean you, you strangle people do you with have ligatures? Hobby? I, I would like a That's hobby. Cool. Can I, I learn your hobby? Yeah, you could teach me. Like, come <laughs> on, guys. Like, ugh. Okay. Um, Jeez. So Lord Brennan believed that the Braben Report's conclusion that Timothy probably murdered his wife should be rejected, given John's confessions and conviction. And maybe because he's a serial killer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, eh? <laughs> On the 16th of November 2004, Westlake, Timothy's half-sister, began an application for judicial, judicial review in the High Court, challenging a decision by the Criminal Cases Review Commission not to refer Evans' case, Evans's case to the Court of Appeal to have his conviction formally quashed. She argued that Evans's pardon had not formally expunged his conviction of murdering his daughter, and although the Braben report had concluded that Evans probably did not kill his daughter, it had not declared him innocent. Yeah, so basically it was incomplete. They're okay. like, so he's innocent, but we're not going to... She wants it to be completed and formalized? Is it that... sounds like it, yeah. Like, that's what I was getting from that when I was researching, is that she's like, you guys kind of didn't fin do didn't the thing. It. Yeah. He didn't kill either. Yeah. The report also contained the, quote, devastating conclusion that Evans had probably killed his wife. Right. So, like, basically, they, yeah. they weren't letting go of that. So they need to change that. it. Yeah. yeah. They weren't letting go of that because they didn't want the police to look like they'd fucked up. Like idiots, which they are anyway. So they're giving him such a half-hearted, innocent sentence, like, after yeah. the fact. Ridiculous. The request to refer the case was dismissed, though, with the judges saying that the cost and resources of quashing the conviction could not be justified, although they did accept that Evans did not murder either his wife or child. So, like, okay. <laughs> right. Anyway, going to close this off on a fun fact about more current relating... Uh, more current info relating to oh, wrongful imprisonment. More yeah. current info relating to wrongful imprisonment and execution in the United States for our American listeners. Listen up, guys. University of Michigan law professor Samuel Gross led a team of experts in the law and in statistics that estimated the likely number of unjust convictions. The study, published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, determined that at least 4% of people on death row were and are likely innocent. Gross has no doubt that some innocent people have been executed. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Guaranteed. It's even a higher number, probably. Probably, yeah. At least. 
But it's probably worse than that. Statistics likely understate the actual problem of wrongful convictions because once an execution has occurred, there's often insufficient motivation and finance to keep a case open. And it becomes unlikely at that point that the miscarriage of justice will ever be exposed. For example... In the case of Joseph Roger Odell III, executed in Virginia in 1997 for a rape and murder, a prosecuting attorney accorded a prosecuting attorney argued in court in 1998 that if posthumous DNA results exonerated Odell, quote, it would be shouted from the rooftops that Virginia executed an innocent man. Well, you, it wasn't all of Virginia, it was just some some of you. Yeah. Okay. Virginia, Virginians <laughs> out there, you probably didn't do you didn't this. Do it. If you yeah. did, though, you should feel responsible. If you're the government, fuck, fuck, fuck the you. Virginia government. Yeah. <laughs> the state prevailed, and the evidence was destroyed. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So there, it's obviously a higher number because what happened, like in this case, where yeah. they're like, "No, too expensive to look into it." Sorry, oh, bye. So many times, I'm sure it's never even been figured out. Oh, exactly. So yeah, a lot of innocent people are murdered, and then it's covered up. Guess we all just have to try our best not to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Good luck out there, folks, says Ren. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Yeah. Uh, try not to accidentally live in a flat that yeah, maybe near, has near a, serial a serial killer. killer. Like, you'll never know. So no. I don't know how you can how mitigate pull that. pull this off, but... Um, but good luck. Good luck. So... Jesus. We are available everywhere podcasts can all be over. found. Stitcher, Apple, uh, blah, blah, blah. All of them. Yeah. We, you can't escape. You can't get away so. from us. Yeah, so email I mean, us. I'm bummed. But yeah. Email us your washroom house, uh, stories. Oh, I'm. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I guess I made you guys sit through one that I had, right? Like washing the toilet. Oh, so yeah. yeah, fair enough. But no, yeah, something, something weird, eerie, whatever's happened to you. Two scared siblings at gmail.com. Yes, and we can be found on Twitter at two scared sibs, and our Patreon's pinned to the top. Uh, patreon.com slash two scared siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. You know what? I'm still like zoned out and also sad. Me too. That's um, a bummer. Uh, yeah. It's we're bad gonna when give the government you. can make these decisions. It's not good. We're going to comfort you. Yeah. We're going to comfort you with a smooch good night. Mm-hmm. Sleep well.